Super Hornets overhead coming out with their team. And from West Point, the Black Knights of Army. And the Chinook and Apache helicopters out with their team. For the win in double overtime for the Black Knights. Kick out of the way. It is good. Army wins. Fake to Samuel Purdy. Rolling. Rolling. And he's got it for the touchdown. Purdy back delivers. Caught again. It's a first down. Jennings with a great move, and he's going to score. Third down and about a yard and a half. Extra men on the rush. This one floated. Caught by Chase. And he is gone. Touchdown Cincinnati as he takes it into the end zone. On the move. He's going to run it, and he's going to come up big. Jalen Milrow. And he wisely hits the deck. But I think Alabama's in the play. They are 12 and 1. They're perfect against Georgia in SEC championship games. You're listening to another edition of Sports Today with Peter J. Here's your host, Peter J. Mulroy. Yeah, it's Army Navy Week. And that, you know, outside of all the, <clears throat> excuse me getting over a little cold <clears throat> outside of the real chaos that took place last week. And that's where we're going to start the show uh, in college football. Outside of all of that chaos, we get to take a pause from it and really focus on one of the most meaningful games in, in all of sports each year. And that's the Army versus Navy game. Now, they'll play today for those listening live. And again, had some tech issues last night, so the show didn't air Friday at 7. Uh, it, it airs today in this noon hour, Saturday, December 9th. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. So Army and Navy going to meet today for the 124th time. They're going to meet in Foxborough, uh, Gillette Stadium, where the New England Patriots play. Navy leads the all-time series 62-54 with seven ties. Both teams come in five and six. Records outside the window for this one. I mean, this is a game, uh, the pageantry, the significance of it, uh, you heard Brad Nessler from a year ago uh, where the game went to overtime and it was a victory for Army in Philadelphia. And he talked about the flyovers with the Apache helicopters, um, representative of the United States military and everything it stands for. That's the best flyover, by the way, for any sporting event in the world. You get to see the two teams walk in running in the stadium with their American flags. They do the march out for the Army and Navy where they all meet in perfect formation, perfect symmetry, pregame on the field. There's nothing like it. Plus, you usually see a pretty damn good football game. President of the United States, I, I, I believe he'll be there today. President Biden, the U.S. presidents, if they can, are usually there. There'll be a ceremonial coin toss. It's great. Game will be at 3 p.m. Eastern time today on CBS. And it gives us a little bit of a break from some of the nonsense we've been dealing with in college football basically the last seven days. So enjoy the Army-Navy game today because it's really the last game we'll get before we get into bowl season 
which starts December 16th. Personally, I like Navy in the game, right? I think Navy will win the contest, end the season at 506-6 and that would drop Army to 5-7. and I think it's going to be a good one. I like the midshipmen. But that nonsense I'm referring to that we get a little respite from this week revolves around the college football playoff and the selection committee's infinite wisdom. You're going to get two damn good semifinal games. I'm not saying that. You're going to get Michigan, who's the number one team in the country, representing the Big Ten. They'll play Alabama out of the SEC, the SEC champion. Semifinal two will be Washington, the number two ranked team in the country, the Pac-12 champion, and Texas, the Big 12 champion, ranked third in the country. So you've got marketability there. Big names, specifically with Alabama, Texas, and Michigan. We know Michigan has been in this tournament the last couple of years. They've become a mainstay in it in this, the final year of the Final Four. The tournament expands, thank God, to 12 teams starting next year. Texas is no stranger to big-time football after winning its first Big 12 championship since 2009. And then Alabama, obviously the damage they've done come tournament time under Nick Saban. Washington's in the Final Four for a second time. First under head coach Kalen DuBoer, who deservedly so, won AP Coach of the Year last night. But I think you all know, when I reference that word, maybe it's our word of the day, nonsense, that we've been dealing with revolves around that selection process. It was a complete and utter disgrace that a Power 5 champion in Florida State, 13-0, ACC champion, went out of their way to schedule pretty damn good non-conference competition, namely starting the season LSU, and all they did was steamroll. Brian Kelly's good LSU team, who, oh, by the way, contains Jaden Daniels, who tonight is probably going to win the Heisman Trophy. Florida State waxed them by three touchdowns to start the year. They run the table, and they run the table the last couple of weeks without their starting quarterback, Jordan Travis, whose college, whose college career ended with a devastating injury. Go to the ACC championship, knock off a Louisville team that came in ranked 14th in the country, I think, when the game was played, 16-6 to with a third-string quarterback. Because Tate Rodemacher, who took over for Jordan Travis, was dealing with concussion issues. He wasn't cleared for contact. So he couldn't play. And they still win the game. They hold a Louisville team who was a top 28 offensive unit to six points. And they're able to win by 10 against the Louisville defense who was top 30. A Louisville defense that's got damn good resume after they basically manhandled Notre Dame two months ago at home. Florida State gets left out. And the thing that was so insulting, and people are afraid to say it. I'm not. I could care less. But I don't have to go. The beauty of doing a podcast like this, radio show, whatever you want to call it, I don't have to battle with the likes of the big guns. The thing that really, really pissed me off the most was how ESPN anchored that coverage. Now, the, the chair of the college football committee is a man by the name of Boo Corrigan, former athletic director at North Carolina State. So there's your ACC tie-in, right? You knew you could have a potential headache on your hand if a couple of thing hap things happened. And I outlined many of those things last week. What would happen if Oregon beat Washington in the Pac-12 championship? 
what would happen if Alabama beat Georgia in the SEC championship? What do we do now that potentially you'd probably eliminate Ohio State for already losing to Michigan and not playing in a conference championship game? But what happens if Texas loses? Texas is out with the second loss. But if Alabama beats Georgia, that happened, by the way. Now, Alabama's got the one loss, and they're an SEC champion. Georgia's got the one loss. What do you do with them? So there were things that could have happened to make the committee's life very difficult. One of them, and the biggest one, was going to be Alabama beating Georgia, and that's exactly what happened. Now, I think most of us thought that what the committee would do was put Alabama in the tournament. What they should have done was put Florida State in there. And I don't care what you think. I don't care you, what, what your inclination is to have any uh, emotional attachment to what happened with this selection. The fact of the matter is, and we've seen it time and time again, that SEC bias and finances are going to rule the roost. And that's what happened. God forbid. You take an Alabama team who had the one loss on its resume to Texas in Tuscaloosa by 10 earlier in the season and leave them out. Now, they had beaten a Georgia team that was riding a 29-game winning streak, back-to-back national champions. I get it. But to leave for the first time ever an undefeated Power 5 champion out of a tournament was disgraceful because look at this folks and I can't believe that it's 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 still this much of a debate there's nothing you could do about it now I know Rick Scott down in Florida is trying to get legislation to go after the committee and after college football it's a waste of time if you're Paying attention solely to strength of record, Alabama wins it. The strength of record was five Florida states and 50 or 55, whatever it was. I don't have it in front of me. What the committee said was that they favor teams who are entering at full strength. Well, what does that mean? So, Body of work no longer matters. That's the precedent that the committee is setting here. 13-0. Folks, it doesn't matter how you get the wins as long as you get it done. And I guess that's why so many people prefer the National Football League over college. There's no style points. There shouldn't be style points anyway. And what they were saying outside of their SEC bias, which, yes, exists, and I know that'll piss the people off down south, I don't care. You have a Florida State team that did everything right. The body of work was there. Season opening win at a neutral site against LSU. Running the table. Running the table in conference. Winning the conference championship 13-0. And you told them, go scratch. The regular season doesn't matter. You don't have your starting quarterback. You're not worthy of getting in the tournament. That's ridiculous. Should the Cincinnati Bengals be eliminated from the NFL playoffs because Joe Burrow's not playing? Should the Jacksonville Jaguars be eliminated from NFL playoff conversation because Trevor Lawrence might be out for extended time after getting hurt last week? Bengals beat the Jaguars last week, by the way, with Jake Browning, the backup to Joe Burrow. 
Florida State won an ACC tournament with a freshman quarterback who had thrown four passes. So don't tell us, and this is where ESPN's insanity really got to me. Don't tell us how heroic the college football playoff committee was by making this decision and wading waters like they were on the front lines at freaking Normandy with guns pointed in their face and, 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 and dodging incoming fire like they did something so unbelievably, overwhelmingly, ch- oh, they picked four teams. This is a heroic moment in time. You picked four teams and you screwed one. And ESPN just gushing over Cargan. Oh, he puts his heart and soul into making the decision. This man should be lauded and appreciated for everything he's done. The ripple effect from what Corrigan did and his committee, these powers that be, by leaving Florida State out, also had a huge impact on the rest of the bowl slate. But this was a gross decision that really was simple. You've got power five teams all over this, and you might be picking between you're picking between an SEC champion in Alabama, a one-loss Georgia team, the Big 12 champion in Texas. I suppose Ohio State is in that mix with the one loss. The common denominator should have been there that Ohio State, Texas, Alabama, and then Georgia after losing to Alabama in the SEC championship game had one loss. Florida State had zero. Zero. Their body of work was just as good. Don't give me the strength of record crap. What message are you sending here? Because now we're expanding to 12 a year ago, uh, next year. Are we going to have the same issues fighting between who gets 12 and 13? Yeah, that's going to be a problem. There's nothing you can do about that. But the water downfield to now with the expansion from 4 to 12 is great for next year. You worry about that when you get there. But what's the precedent here? If this happens again, leaving out an undefeated Power 5 team because someone isn't on the field, that's what they're saying. They could say whatever they want about the strength of record, about how they – the fact of the matter is that this committee was not leaving out an SEC team and they were afraid to put a Florida State team in because of who wasn't ready to play, and that's Jordan Travis, and that's insane. And the constant smacking of the behind of Corrigan and this committee, how much they appreciated his grueling work. He and his team did. Oh, they knew they were going to have to face the firing squad, and they came out as the real winners in this. I mean, ESPN, it bothers me that I have to watch the network because they anchor most of the games. It's a disgusting joke, disgrace of a network. It really has become that. And it's sad. They've become more political than anything, and they put their saucy little watered down, everyone's a hero. Every time you make a tough decision, you're heroic. You have to be put up on a pedestal. And then they want to interview... Mike Norvell, the head coach of Florida State after. Go scratch. Take a hike. 
Nothing more than an opportunity to jack up ratings. And I'll tell you another thing. If you, you're worried about selling those ratings for the, for the names on the front of the jerseys and the logo on the helmets, Florida State sells itself. And now under Norvell, they look like they're back. And oh, by the way, since losing Travis, they, duh, they haven't lost a game. It's money. And it's disgraceful. And there was no defense of it. Despite ESPN's best effort to try to sauce this up and doll this up. This was one of the more egregious things I've seen in sports. And then you get another thing from the mouthpiece at ESPN, Stephen A. Smith. Well, tweets, puts out one of the, one of the most insane things I've ever read. And, it, I, and I know I've said on my program before, I don't like taking shots at people. It's freaking warranted here. Tweeting out that Florida State, and this is a tweet you couldn't look it up. Florida State can thank TCU for not getting an invite to the Final Four. What the hell does that mean? This is a man that makes $4 million a year to say crap like this on social media. Now, what he's referencing is the, is the ass-kicking TCU took in the national championship game last year against Georgia. Everybody knows it. What was the final score? 63-7? Something, of, uh, something like that? That was also a TCU team that put it on Michigan in the semifinal and just happened to have the worst game of the season at the utmost worst time. So you can thank TCU for Florida State not getting in the tournament. I mean, this, these, this is the type of person ESPN pays to say this crap. You're going for ratings, and the committee probably saw an opportunity to have a potential crack at getting Alabama and Texas back on the field again for a rematch from earlier in the season. Now, don't get me wrong. Alabama-Texas is going to sell itself. It'd be a damn good game. But God, and I'll say it again. God forbid we leave an SEC team out. And here's the other thing that, <laughs> that no one's brought up. So Florida State, who going into that final committee vote was fourth. They got bumped to five for Alabama, who went from eight to four with the SEC title game. Florida State, with a third-string quarterback, undefeated record, viewed as no good by the committee. Yet, to go to the Orange Bowl, where they're going to play Georgia, this committee, who knows everything, who knows better than everyone, ranks them higher than a Georgia team who went from one to six. Florida State goes from four to five. So they're not good enough to get into the final four, but they're good enough to be ranked over one spot ahead of the two-time defending national champion who had a 29-game win streak snapped in a three-point loss to Alabama in the SEC championship game. I mean, you want to laugh, that's something to make you laugh at. You're not good enough to play, but you're good enough to be ranked ahead of with a third-string quarterback who's only thrown about 15 balls in his career ahead of the two-time defending national champion. And if you, if you really, and I get dirty looks when I say this, I've gotten the inbox on social media. If you really want to break, you know what? If you really wanted to do the right thing, and, and if you really, really, really were concerned about the integrity of the game, which, again, is played by student 
athletes. Leave Michigan out. Have a pair. This is a program that was wrapped up in two separate cheating scandals, basically proven accurate for the simple fact that their head coach was suspended twice in one year. And they're the number one team. Cheating twice, head coach, two suspensions in a season. Two in a season. And you got Desmond Howard defending him a couple weeks ago. They're going after Michigan. Dude, think before you speak. If you really wanted to protect the, do the right thing, that's what you could have done. No, I know. I, I'm being a little aggressive there. I'm the get-off-my-lawn guy. I get it. Fine. God forbid we do the right thing, right? God forbid we have integrity. And make decisions with our brains instead of our wallets. How dare me? God forbid. But the fact of the matter is that this Florida State team should have been in, fully knowing that Michigan, that was not going to happen. Who do you leave out? I'm sorry. You leave out Alabama. You leave out the SEC champion. And your SEC bias takes a hit for a year because when you expand to 12 teams, you're probably going to get three damn teams in the tournament anyway because I think LSU would have been 12th this year. So you would have had a good amount of SEC representation as you should. This year aside, an undefeated Florida State team, yeah, that's what you do, folks. It really, it, it, it shouldn't boil down to much more than that. People are afraid to have the Michigan discussion because, oh, by the way, right after they get done licking the you-know-what a car again, who does ESPN bring on? Oh, Jim Harbaugh. Oh, Jim, masterful job navigating the, the rocky waters that you had to sit out uh, multiple suspensions this year with Michigan to do a hell of a job to get your team one win away from playing for a national championship. They don't even broach the subject. They don't even bring it up. I wish I could live in a world where there was no, I mean, there's no freaking accountability in the world as there is. But on a consistent basis, I'd love to get that treatment. Where do I sign up for that? Do whatever you want and have no consequences. That's what college football and their committee, these idiots that make this decision, that's what they told you. We don't care. We want the ratings. We want the SEC branding. And we don't want to piss off anyone down south. SEC bias, folks. It exists. And it was at the detriment of these kids and their head coach at Florida State. An absolute no-brainer to put that team in the Final Four, and they blew it. Just before I came on the air, as a matter of fact, news out of the world of college football, a really good quarterback from Oklahoma, Dylan Gabriel, can sling it, a lefty, uh, similar, a little bit bigger than Michael Penix, transferring. After entering the portal, he's going to go to uh, Oregon next year. So that's big news. So Oregon's going to go from Bo Nix, who will be a highly sought pick in the upcoming draft in April, to Dylan Gabriel. It's going to be interesting to see this transition with Dan Lanning, who's a head coach that I love, and what he's been able to do and really resurrect this Oregon offense and do it on both sides of the ball. I'd like to see Oregon bolster that secondary. But to have that transition from now Knicks to Gabriel is pretty special. 
you know, I'm not in love with all this NIL stuff in college football, and I think the portal has gotten completely out of control. I am all about marketability for a young student athlete. Obviously, the heavier sports are going to carry more of that weight, right? The basketballs, men's and women's hoop, football, things of that nature. I get it. But I think there was an opportunity to control it better in the beginning, and now it's completely off the rails. It's become, it's become free agency. I mean, you heard Matt Rule uh, a couple of weeks ago discussing how you go into the portal and you want to get a good quarterback. Let's use, for, for, for example, Sam Hartman, the quarterback at Notre Dame. You want to go a path like that next year, or Riley Leonard will be out there. Gabriel was on the market. Now he's off it. Uh, Cam Ward, the really good-looking quarterback from Washington State. These guys are going to be on the market. And Matt Rule basically comes out and says, hey, it's going to cost you about a buck and a half, $2 million for a good portal quarterback. I mean, where are we that this can't be regulated better? You do a commercial. And I'll give you a great for instance. I go out to South Bend and my wife a couple weeks ago uh, for the Notre Dame-Wake Forest game. We go into that bookstore and get – you know, we didn't go nuts because I got more Notre Dame shit than I know what to do with. And But you saw things that you, you normally didn't see, and it, it's player advertising and branding. You got Sam Hartman's face on a shirt. Right? You got Audric Estime. He's got his own, uh, I think it was his sweatshirt line. For those kids, that's great. The income that they're making there. And I, and I think one of the good things that this may allow you to do in sort of a catch-22 here, is take a guy like Marvin Harrison Jr. He's up for the Heisman Trophy tonight. Heard him this morning on, on the air. You know, there is a, there's the idea that he, and I suppose maybe Caleb Williams, who's going to be a top-two pick in the draft if he enters, might hang around college for another year. More exposure. More opportunity. You play for that national championship. For Harrison, maybe you get some revenge on Michigan uh, after a couple of losses. Because I, I, I don't think the jump now with this NIL stuff to the NFL is all that necessary. Now, is that good or bad? You, know, you want these guys as a college football fan, you know, on the college gridirons. But at what cost? I mean, to have to go into the portal, there does, folks, there does have to be that element of the fact that these, ki- these are still kids. Yes, a lot of them will get legitimate, sound, legal and financial advice slash guidance. That will happen. But a lot will not. And that's scary. There's going to be the universities that just look at the kid and see dollar signs. That's scary. You know, I get it. Coming down to the X's and O's and wanting to win football games, let's go into the portal and see what we can get. What does that mean for the development of the guys and, and the kids that are already on your teams? You know, just because we were talking about the Final Four, let's focus on a, a sport like football. What does that mean? What does development look like? Of rec- what does it do to recruiting? Conventional recruiting. Going out on the road, going into a kid's home, sitting down with his or her parents, and going through the whole spiel. As opposed to just showing up with a blank check. You know, I think you have to be very careful there. I don't hate it, but I do think it's gotten out of control. And I think there has to be a better job. Not necessarily just with the NIL stuff, but with this transfer portal. There there has to be limitations on it. You know, I, I said 
a couple years ago on a different program that I was doing at the time. Uh, and I had said it, matter of fact, right as I was following Bill Daughtry on the air, as a matter of fact. You should have a, a black month or a dark month where a lot of these, where these coaches that might be interested in taking the next step can't interview or can't be involved with another program until their season's over. Well, that might cost them an opportunity. Not if you make it clear cut across the board. Not if you say from, and I'm just throwing dates, from Thanksgiving to Jan 1 of the new year or until after the national championship ends, you are where you are. Any interviews, you've got placeholders there. You can conduct them after the fact. Can there be something done with the portal? Because you know already with these bowl games, unless you're playing for a national championship, these top picks aren't going to play. And I get it. But I also have an appreciation for that team aspect and that camaraderie aspect and being there for your teammates when it matters the most. So if you can come up with something there where coaches got to do their due diligence through the season and then the NIL stuff and the, and the transfer portal stuff picks up when responsibilities to the team that you're currently on have ended, then I'd probably be a little more uh, open-door policy with it. But as constituted right now, it's just not working. It's out of control, and it's become money over meaningfulness. And that's scary. And I'm not just saying that as someone who is a teacher. I'm saying it as someone who has an appreciation for what getting that degree and simultaneously being a student-athlete means or should mean. There are folks that might value the aspect of a college degree perhaps less than they may have years ago, and that's fine. But you are weaponizing yourself when you have that legitimate degree. Right, wrong, or indifferent, it matters. It means something. And if it's just going to come down to dollars and cents here, which is basically what we saw with this college football committee, that SEC branding. I don't care what they say. You left the Florida State team out because of who they were putting out on the field, ignored their complete body work, and you went for the big gun in naming. You leapfrogged a couple of teams and moved Alabama up four spots because they represent the, the SEC, and you left out the ACC champion. That involves money, folks. Don't convince yourself otherwise. It's true. I'll always say most of the things I won't try to convince you one way or the other. I, you're not going to convince me that I'm wrong here. This came down to money, and that was it. And one team who played their asses off all year got screwed. So with all of that in mind, I really hope they do get this under control. Yes, going into the 12-team expansion, and then yes, on the portal and the NIL fronts. Because it, it, if it hasn't completely gotten off the rails yet, it's close. And I, I think we've started to see that. I think you got a good look at it last year when USC completely revamped its team under Caleb Williams and then what Colorado did this year with Dion. And I like Dion. Don't get me wrong there. I am a Dion Sanders fan. But you want to make sure that a lot of this can be regulated better and the decision makers can be better because right now, not good. Uh, Mike's on the line. Mike, what's up, man? How are you? Yeah, hi, Pete. How you doing? What's going on? Uh, I agree with everything you're saying, and I have one question um, about Florida State being left off. 
Do you think it was possible that because their quarterback got hurt and didn't play in the last couple of games that they were left off because the board didn't think they'd be competitive enough? I, but, and, I, and yes, that's part of it. I, I, I'm in there with the SEC bias because they'd be deathly afraid of the repercussions that because nobody has a spine on this committee, Mike. That's what it comes down to. We've seen right. it before, just never this bad. But this is also a Florida State team that without their quarterback, beat a, a Louisville team that was top 30 in the country in everything, offense and defense. So what that committee said was, hey, we don't care what you did leading up. We only care about who your quarterback is not. Now, what's not to say Jordan Travis comes out in the Final Four, doesn't throw four interceptions, Florida State gets blown out anyway. You have yeah. no idea. And to yeah. do that, it sets a horrible precedent. I, I, I do yeah. think it was it was that SEC bias, Mike, but yeah. A huge part of that was the fact it was Jordan Travis, and that's wrong. I mean, I, I said it before. Should the Jacksonville Jaguars be eliminated from postseason contention because it looks like Trevor Lawrence is going to be out a couple of weeks? That's right. It's yeah. absurd. If Patrick Mahomes goes down tomorrow or C.J. Stroud goes down at MetLife on Sunday, should the Texans be eliminated because they don't have their quarterback? Yeah. You got to feel bad for Florida State having an undefeated season. Uh, yeah, and 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 now you you've got you've got good matchups in this final four. I'm not saying that, but the path to getting there to take a Power Five champion. And by the way, if you go and wins and losses, Florida State is in that pool. Other than Michigan, they're undefeated. Wow! And the committee was saying that they don't care about that either, which to me was disgraceful. Yep. So I, look, I, I, and and Mike, I appreciate the call uh, as always, but. When you when you talk about wins and losses, again, in the NFL, there's no style points. You win or you lose. You know, that's why you'll see in college football, they'll schedule a layup, right? Alabama will schedule, you know, Chattanooga or, you know, Delaware State and just lay the wood to them to jack up the style points. So you're battling that also. But to send that message that you don't care about wins and losses, just who's on the field at that moment. And yes, the dollars and cents from SEC Nation. It's, it's, it's a problem that I really hope gets fixed because what Boo Cargan and that committee did, and then ESPN just slapping them on the back and saying, hey boys, job well done, can't continue. Especially going into expansion, which was needed. You need the 12-team field. I even lobbied for 16 like the FCS does because I think it's a great tournament, but 12 is fine. You're rocking and rolling with 12. You got four of this year, New Year's Day, Rose Bowl, 5 p.m., Sugar Bowl, 845. Michigan's in the Rose Bowl against Alabama, Washington, Texas in the Sugar Bowl. You got four teams, just got the wrong four teams. And it's sad, and it's something that absolutely needs to be corrected. And hopefully moving forward, this is something that does get corrected. I'm Sensei Felicia. And I'm Sensei Mike Karim. And we are the owners and instructors of Dento Tekina, Judo Jiu-Jitsu, and MMA Dojo on Victory Boulevard in San Al, New York. If you're looking to improve or refocus your overall physical and mental health, 
Come join us on the map where we offer a variety of classes from ages four and up for all experience levels. Whether you're interested in self-defense, learning the traditional Japanese fighting methods of judo and jiu-jitsu, or taking our MMA conditioning courses, we have what you need to take your training methods to the next level. So come join us at Dento Technina Judo Jiu-Jitsu and MMA Dojo on Staten Island. Yeah, I get a big thanks to our sponsors out here uh, locally on Staten Island for backing us up, uh, the Dento Tekina Judo Jiu-Jitsu uh, Dojo. They, they do a great job week in and week out of, of covering all of New York City, hit training classes, uh, interval training, everything they have over there uh, at Victory Boulevard. It's great, and we want to thank them uh, for sponsoring the show as well. So transitioning from college football and, and all of the chaos that had taken place uh, leading into today's Army-Navy game and then bowl season. Uh, the bowl season starts a week from today on the 16th. We'll start breaking those games down uh, as we go. Um, and just quick programming scheduling the next couple of weeks um, due to some outside events. I believe I'm going to be hosting the show uh, on Thursday the next couple of weeks. I will be sure to update all the social media boards and everything uh, as I know, uh, as uh, availability, on-air availability becomes uh known to me i will fill you in but let's for now we're into week 14 and you know one of the themes that i had put out here in my in my teaser tweets and posts was the fact that the san francisco 49ers have been rolling especially the last month their last four wins would be impressive no matter what but then you add into the fact that they've got four straight wins over teams that are in the playoff race and it becomes even more impressive 34 to 3 over jacksonville I mean, that was a beatdown. Two-touchdown win over Tampa Bay. Hammering Seattle on the road Thanksgiving. And then putting it on Philly last week, 42-19. to Look, I said last week, and I was pretty clear, I believed last week the Philadelphia Eagles to win the Super Bowl. But I picked San Francisco in the game. And you can do that. I didn't think San Fran. Now, Philly had a grueling stretch in their own right, and they were winning games. Overtime victory over Buffalo the week before at home. I get it. The Philly team's damn good. They just ran into a freight train in San Francisco. You know, and I said that a couple times, I, and I've got them right there. That I believe the Eagles to be the Super Bowl favorites. But, you know, after looking at that, yes, even with a tired Philly team, I think San Francisco wins that game at full strength regardless. At this moment, how can you not like them to be the favorite? Now, anything can happen, but I think my tune's changing a little bit. But you've got the Eagles, Dallas, Baltimore, Miami, San Francisco. They're all in that conversation. Right? These are teams that are certainly right there. I mean, you talk about the MVP race. Brock Purdy should be getting a little more love than he is. I mean, Hertz is there. Dak Prescott might be the leader in the clubhouse. And Tyreek Hill from the non-quarterback spot. You know, now Mahomes will get his, and you can't dismiss them from Super Bowl talk because they still have the, the, the weaponry. I guess you'd want to see more consistency from the wide receiver core in Kansas City, but you can't just poo-poo them. So you're going to have interest going into the last four weeks of this NFL season. It's going to be fun. The other thing that's interesting as we take a look at this NFL playoff picture is you've got the Pittsburgh Steelers, and, you, and this Pittsburgh team has got to be super frustrating for the fan base. Two straight losses to drop in the seven and six, and not really conventional losses. It's two consecutive losses to two win teams in Arizona and New England. And what that did was really open 
the wild card race in the AFC for teams like the Browns, who are now a, a half game ahead of Pittsburgh in the AFC North. The Colts are also seven and five. The Texans seven and five with a game this weekend against the Jets. Broncos Bengals at six and six. I guess you can't eliminate the Bengals after they just beat Jacksonville. And then the Bills, monster uphill uphill climb at six and six also. But with that loss Thursday night to the Patriots, where Bailey Zappi, who couldn't hit the ocean if he was wading in it, throws three touchdown passes. That dropped as of today. Pittsburgh out of the playoff race. They're the first team out if it started today. So you look at the league right now. Going into this weekend, we've had the Thursday night game. Steelers lose to the Pats, so the week's underway. I'll get into my picks in a minute, but yeah, I went with the Steelers in that one. I didn't think they were going to do it two weeks in a row. I, like, according to the numbers, 97% of the CBS pickers were wrong. So you got Miami in the one spot in a virtual tie with Baltimore, but they, they, they have that tiebreaker there. Miami gets the Titans this week. Baltimore gets the Rams. Then you got the Chiefs and Jags at 3-4. Jaguars hot and cold, and they've got a big one against Cleveland, who's fifth right now. The Colts and Texans, sixth and seventh. Colts get the Bengals, big game there for both, and then the Jets get the Texans. The Texans right now would be the last team in with Pittsburgh, Denver, and Cincinnati right behind them with with Buffalo. You go over and look at the NFC, it's tight as well. Because right now you've got Philly at the top, a game over San Fran. Philly's got Dallas this week in Big D. 49ers host the Seahawks. Lions and Falcons at three and four. Cowboys, Vikings, Packers are your wild card teams right now at five, six, and seven. In the hunt, and it's interesting, are the Seahawks at six and six, the Rams at six and six. Vikings and Saints at 5-7 and seven are a game back. And believe it or not, and I can't even believe I'm saying this, <laughs> the New York Giants <laughs> yeah, are two games back. And they play Green Bay this weekend. Monday night. I mean, <laughs> this is what you get this time of the year. And Saquon Barkley again last night said, you know, it, it has been a wild season, but despite all of this crap, you know, Tyrod Taylor returning this week, but Tommy DeVito still going to get the start for the Giants against Green Bay. This is a Green Bay team that has looked really good. Jordan Love coming into his own after being a backup to Aaron Rodgers the last couple of years, wins on the road Thanksgiving against Detroit, and then picking up the huge win against Kansas City. I mean... This is Green Bay. Now, you're talking about this Packer team amongst the hottest teams in the league. But at, at, with two games out, I, I, I guess you're, you, the Giants aren't going anywhere, folks. But is it nice to at least have the ability this Monday night to sit down and say, hey, you know what? Yeah. Like it or lump it, this game matters. They're not out of it. And that's the bottom line. So when you look at the slate this week, and I'll go through uh, this week's picks for week 14. 
all right, I said 97% of the people went with Pittsburgh. It was 95. We were all wrong. Pats get the win on Thursday night. Saints hosting Carolina. This is a Carolina team. You know, I think Bryce Young, I said this last week and the week before, I think he's getting a bulk uh, of the negativity. I do think there is development there, but this is just a bad Carolina team. You know, even if the Saints come out sluggish, I just can't see them losing this game at home, especially with them still being in this playoff race. Uh, because as constituted right now, third in the NFC South, yeah, they're a game out of the wild card race, but they're right behind Atlanta at five and seven with the Falcons uh, atop the spot in the South at six and six. So this is a big game for the Saints. I think they get it done. Lions go to Chicago. Look, with Fields back and, and, and the Chicago offense, I, you know, this is a team that's a little snake bit. They're four and eight there. I guess you're not totally dismissive of them. Uh, Chicago, like the Giants, have some games on their schedule from earlier that are in the loss column because of self-inflicted wounds. So it, it, it might be a, a, a different conversation we're having if things go differently. I just like Detroit on the road this week to get it done. Houston is at the Jets. There's, there's no way. And the, the big news this week, and there was a lot of nonsense circulating out of Jets camp this week with you know uh, Zach Wilson being approached about being uh, anointed or re-anointed re the starting quarterback and saying, hey, hey, basically, F you. I never bought that for a second, that that was the case. Uh, I, I thought it was absurd when it was floated out, uh, which I, I think, oddly enough, that report came from ESPN, who I have not been kind to uh, today for obvious reasons, and I think deservedly so. Um, I never bought it for a minute. Rob Sala said, the, the, the thing that makes me scratch my head is, is, I don't think the Jets are going to win the game regardless of who uh, is, is under center. I, I like Houston in this game. Um, Zach Wilson gives us the best chance to win. It came out of the mouth of Rob Sala. So now he gives you the best chance to win the last couple of weeks. He didn't with Tim Boyle. I mean, I, I understand some of the, the vitriol that the Jet fan base had towards Zach Wilson, and a lot of it is understandable because the, the fact of the matter is he's, he's not very good. He has not played well. He is not the answer. He is a huge part of the problem. Um, to, to go back in this spot is interesting, specifically because it is a home game. I mean, if Wilson goes out there and, and you know what the bed, the stadium's going to get raucous, and it it it, it could be uh, problematic uh, on many le many levels. As you probably have to think, Rob Sala's seat is getting hotter and hotter by the day uh, with each passing loss. So, yeah, give me Houston in this one. I, I, I don't think Houston's going to go in there and, and, and beat the crap out of them, but I, I do think they will walk out of there comfortably and, and at least hold on to that playoff spot for another couple weeks. They've been a fun story, the Texans, with C.J. Stroud, uh, who's played really, really, really well, probably the front runner for rookie of the year, at least he should be. So give me the Texans over the Jets Sunday. Indianapolis goes to Cincy. You know, I probably would have looked at this before Cincinnati's win led by Jake Browning over Jacksonville last week and said, hey, let's go Colts on the road in that in that spot. The Colts right now the sixth team in the playoffs if it started today. I liked what I saw from that Cincinnati team, the way they can get after it defensively in spots. And then with Browning, when, when you give him the opportunity to get the ball to his playmakers, i.e. Mixon and Chase, you know, I, I think that, was especially with Jamar Chase with the 77-yard touchdown you heard in the open, yeah, I think Cincinnati's got the potential to do some things here. Now, them they, like Buffalo, have got a big uphill climb here to get into this playoff picture, but they can do themselves some major, major justice 
by getting a seven and six and knocking off the Colts at home. And I think they'll do that uh, this Sunday. Cleveland hosts Jacksonville. Lawrence out. It doesn't look good. The 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 timeline on that isn't overwhelmingly positive. So give me Cleveland here with their defense. Cleveland's still up in the air, whether it's going to be DTR or Joe Flacco under center. And by the way, I know it's not ideal, but if you watch him throw the ball, Joe Flacco's still got a freaking cannon. The guy, the guy can still get it down the field. It's actually very impressive. Um, so this is a good story. I think not, not the situation Cleveland fans thought they'd be in, especially with Sean Watson. But right now, hey, Cleveland, you're in. If the playoffs started today, um, at 7-5, and five, you get a win, you go to 8-5. and five. I think Cleveland gets it done over Jacksonville in one of the bigger games of the weekend. Baltimore hosts the Rams, and you're not dismissive of L.A. on the outside looking in here, a game out of the playoffs um, at 6-6, six and six, uh, losing a tiebreaker right now to Green Bay and Minnesota. I just can't see the Rams going to Baltimore uh, and knocking off this Ravens team uh, who continues to contend with Miami for the top spot in the AFC. So give me the Ravens. Tampa goes to Atlanta. I like Atlanta there. I, I just think they're a better team. I'm not reliant in crunch time where I have to sit back and say, okay, Baker Mayfield, go get me the W. No, it's terrifying to me. Give me Atlanta. I know uh, uh, Ritter hasn't been all that spectacular, and he's turnover prone, but I am going Atlanta at home to get another win over Tampa. Vegas hosts Minnesota. You know, it's interesting here because this is a Minnesota team. Again, they're the sixth seed right now, so they'd be in the tournament if it started today. Uh, and the Raiders have fallen out of this thing a little bit uh, at five and seven, two games out in that stacked AFC. I think we all really fell in love with Joshua Dobbs a little harder than we probably should have. You know, I think we liked the way, you know, almost looking at someone from a distance and you get excited and then you see poor play. Uh, last week in a really bad loss for Minnesota. Uh, I, I'm going to go Vegas here at home. I think it's close, but I think the Raiders get it done. San Fran hosts Seattle. I think they're going to pound them. I think this will be win five, uh, five in a row for San Francisco as they continue to roll and play for that top spot in the NFC, which is significant, especially if Dallas beats Philadelphia this weekend. Kansas City hosts Buffalo. Uh, you know, this is big. This is a, usually a great matchup. Good quarterback play, obviously, with Patty Mahomes and, and Josh Allen. You just wonder how much this Buffalo defense is going to be able to put forward against Kansas City. And it's a Kansas City offense that comes in limping a little bit. So they've got the weaponry there if they're able to use it, obviously, with Kelsey from Mahomes. Uh, Rishi Rice on the outside has really grown into that number one receiver that Mahomes wants and needs, especially with the dropsies that we've seen Kansas City. Uh, MVS can still get up and down the field. I'm going to go Kansas City here, and this loss for Buffalo, this could be the nail in the coffin uh, as far as the playoff race is concerned. Am I shocked if Buffalo goes in there and wins the game? Absolutely not, especially after Green Bay just did it with Jordan Love. But I like Kansas City here in a close, fun game in another uh, huge game of the week. Chargers hosting Denver. Uh, it might not be pretty, but I'll take Denver there. And then you got Philly and Dallas, the Sunday night game. Uh, Dallas at home after losing a close one a couple of weeks ago on the road in Philly. They are the favorite. They should be the favorite. Philly getting away from home, a reset after taking an ass-kicking to San Francisco last week. 
I'll go Eagles here. I think they get back on track. You know, I, I would expect that you get a good performance from Dak and you get a good performance from Jalen. I think this will come down to which one of these teams can feature their run better. If that's getting both quarterbacks on the move, you see that more with Hertz, uh, designed runs, I should say, with Hertz as opposed to Dak, who's very mobile in his own right. Who can get that ground game going and create that pressure up front? Whoever does that the best wins the game. I think that'll be Philly this week. But I think it's close, and I think it's going to be a damn good game. You get two Monday night games this week. Green Bay goes to the Giants, and Tennessee goes to Miami. Miami's a monster favorite in this game. And outside of the quarterback position, Tyreek Hill is probably numero uno in the MVP race for a non-quarterback. I mean, he's been magnificent. If anybody's got him on his fantasy team, you're, you're probably at the top or near the top of your league and probably going to the playoffs. Uh, the fantasy playoffs, I believe, start next week as it is anyway. My, uh, Miami all over this one. I just don't think Tennessee is going to have the ability at 4-8 and eight to run anywhere near the team speed. You know, uh, Devon Achan is back in the backfield for Miami now, and he's a game changer. He's a game breaker. And between him and Mostert out of that backfield, with the way Tua has played, who should also be in the MVP combo, yeah, Miami big. Pick-wise, pick with the Giants as a, as a seven-point dog in this one, I'll do it to myself just so I can sit there and have some sense of a positive rooting interest because you all know me by now. I am a miserable person to watch Giant football games with. And I, I'll take the Giants here. Come on, why not, right? Let, because here's what's going to happen. The Giants will win Monday night. That'll push them to 5-8. and eight. They would have beaten a Green Bay team. Six and seven would drop their record. Seattle is not going to beat San Francisco, I don't think. I don't think the Rams are going to beat the Ravens. And I don't think the Falcons are going to lose to Tampa Bay. So you would have the Giants now a game out of this entire thing if they're able to beat Green Bay at home. You'll get the Giants to win. They'll hang around for a couple of weeks. And I'll sit down to watch them play the Eagles with playoff potential on the line. And the Giants will get absolutely steamrolled. That's what's going to happen. I'm almost looking forward to it. So, yeah, with 7% of the CBS Sportline folks picking the Giants, I'll be one of the 7% in this one. So the Monday night games, give me the Giants, who I haven't picked in a serious game in a while, the laughable games against Washington uh, and the Patriots. I thought the Giants would win, and they did. And, hey, by the way, you know, I, I, I guess there's probably no long term here, and I, I think we would all agree with that with Tommy DeVito. But the fact of the matter is that when they let him throw the ball, he, he's successful. He holds on to the ball probably too long. I think the offensive line for the Giants has done a much better job. Now, you'll look at that and say, oh, a couple weeks ago, nine sacks. Five of those, or six of them probably, I think you could attribute to the fact that DeVito was new at this, was thrown into this, hanging on to the football too long. And I think the rapport that he's starting to build there, maybe with an Isaiah Hodgins and Jalen Hyatt, the good-looking receiver who the Giants drafted early, you know, I think they're for, 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 for the now, for the right now, yeah, I think it's a good decision to ride this wave with Tommy DeVito. Now you have a, a Tyrod Taylor potentially if needed. I think it's been a fun story. I think it's great. Certainly a local kid from New Jersey. Uh, those who listen to the show, many of them from my part here in the Northeast and New York, New Jersey area anyway. 
So it's really, really been a fun story. And I, I give me the Giants over Green Bay, which would be an impressive win for the Giants, especially when you think about what Green Bay has done uh, the past couple of weeks with wins over uh, lately uh, Kansas City um, and the Detroit Lions uh, on Thanksgiving. So that's week 14. It should be a good one. Uh, and I think you would expect a lot um, of jockeying and positioning to take place this week uh, with another good slate of NFL gridiron action. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Sports Today with Peter J. Yeah, by now you all know how to subscribe. And look, subscriptions have gone up specifically as it relates to Spotify. And I really, really love that. Apple's done a much better job as well lately. So those of you who who listen live, that's great. But the bulk of it comes right um, at post-production, right? Tape delay. So I really appreciate the downloads for those of you who have been loyalists and those of you who email me uh, and reach out on a weekly basis. I do appreciate it. So uh, just before we wrap, obviously the, the, the MLB winter meetings came to a close on Thursday. Uh, it's a good time of the year. And you know I, what I really want to do, and I want to put this out there uh, to a lot of the folks that listen. I want to put a trip together one year to go out to these winter meetings because it, you don't just go there and stand around and watch these guys stare at each other and sign contracts. It doesn't work that way. There's different classes that you can attend about the intricacies of Major League Baseball. As a former employee of MLB, I have a, an appreciation for how difficult those things can be. You know, I think it'd be a fun you know, little experience to go out and learn you know, some of this back-channel stuff that happens with how do we make these phone calls? How do we get these guys in the room? What do we do? Let's let's uh, for for an example, uh, everything that's taking place um, with Yoshinobu Yamamoto, the 25 year old pitcher from Japan. What goes on to get the ball rolling when all these guys get together and meet uh, at the winter meetings? I think that would be a, a, a fun trip um, to to make, and I'd be interested to see uh, if anybody's been. Let me know what your experience was like. Um, at Peter JM on Twitter, and obviously you all have my email address, Pete Mulroy at hotmail.com. Uh, that's my personal email address. You can send me messages at any time um, or right through many of the platforms as well. But I'd be curious to know if anybody's made that trip before because it is something that I would definitely, definitely uh, like to do for a couple of days and check this out. So you, get, you go to the winter meetings, and for those of you who may not have seen it, yesterday was wild on the rumor mill, and it really only revolved around one guy, and that was Shohei Otani. It does not appear that he's going back to the Angels. But the rumor mill would have had you believe that he had signed with the Toronto Blue Jays yesterday. And when I say yesterday, I'm referencing Friday, December 8th. Legitimate outlets had him on a plane going to Toronto to ink that contract. This went on all day. But you never got that alert that it was finalized because it was false reporting. Done on purpose or not, it was false reporting. Now, Toronto's in the mix. And Adding Otani into a lineup with Vlad, et cetera, would be phenomenal. Bichette and company. But no deal's been made. They're a finalist. And the reports of him being on a plane going to Canada. And Friday night, Otani was on the west coast of the United States, not flying to Canada. So that is going to be something to keep an eye on, obviously. This guy markets himself. If he goes up to Canada, he's the face of a nation which would be pretty pretty unique for a two-way player. Now, he's only going to DH next year with the injury to the pitching arm. 
but it's really going to be something worth watching moving forward because, quite honestly, folks, Mike Trout's phenomenal, Aaron Judge is phenomenal, you name it. We haven't seen a player like this. I mean, this guy, by himself, is worth the price of admission wherever he signs. Personally, finances aside, if they could swing it, I think the San Francisco Giants make a ton of sense. And I guess you can't dismiss a return to the Angels, though I don't think that's going to happen. But the biggest news outside of the winter meetings, yes, uh, Craig Kimbrell going to Baltimore, Luis Severino signs with the Mets. Those are both one-year deals worth uh, 13 mil. So significant moves for both of those teams. But it was the trade between the Yankees and the Padres that brings Juan Soto to New York for a slew of young players uh, headlined by reliever turned starter Michael King, who's tough to lose, Johnny Brito and Randy Vasquez from the Yankees, who really showed promising stuff last season and should make an impact on a San Francisco team that could use the pitching. Now, the interesting thing here for the Yankees is, is many want to know if it's a rental when Soto hits free agency next year. I think you saw this with Giancarlo Stanton a few years ago. Yankees don't let guys like this get away. Soto's 25 years old in that stadium with his swing and his ability. It, it, from an offensive perspective, it, it, Juan Soto's a fit anywhere. He's a perfect fit in the Bronx. And I don't just say that as a Yankee fan. You're talking somewhere north of $500 million, probably seven, eight years because that would put him into his age 32, 31-32 season, which would get him another contract. The Yankees will go that route. He'll get extended. And the other significant thing was the Yankees landing Alex Verdugo from the Red Sox. Greg Wiesert, the young uh, reliever, was one of the players involved in that trade going to Boston. So it's expected now that you'll basically have, outside of Aaron Judge, a brand-new outfield in New York. Verdugo would play left, Judge will be in center, and Juan Soto will play right. Now, Soto, Verdugo, interchangeable in the corners, I suppose. And I know that Juan Soto is not known for his glove. Trent Grisham came over in that deal, two-time gold glover. He'll be able to spell Aaron Judge in center field unless they flip him for some arms. Because the Yankees are still going to need rotation rotation help behind Garrett Cole and Nestor Cortez. I think we all know that. Carlos Rodon was uninspiring through an injury-riddled campaign. King Vasquez and Brito are now gone, part of the Soto deal. That reunion with Frankie Montaz, you're asking me, it's not going to happen. Bringing back Jordan Montgomery, sure. Yamamoto, I, I, he's supposed to meet with the Yankees on December 11th, which is this coming Monday. That would give you another 25-year-old. And I think between Yamamoto and Soto, as opposed for landing the big fish in Otani, fills the two needs that the Yankees need, and they'd both be 25 years old. So that would be significant. That would be a job well done if you're able to bring Yamamoto to the Bronx. But now you look at this Yankee lineup, what it could potentially look like, at least in my view, and you can get creative with it, I suppose. You probably have DJ LeMahieu leading off playing third. I think Soto bats second in right, and Aaron Judge in center would hit third. Other people might flip that around for Soto to protect Judge. I think you have Judge third, an opportunity to drive some guys in later in games behind Soto, and you can probably DH Anthony Rizzo. 
assuming, and Rizzo obviously playing first base, that there's a bounce back. Because Anthony Rizzo had the worst year of his career offensively a year ago. Stanton will probably bat fifth. He'll beat your DH, your primary DH. They'll put him in the outfield, I suppose, at times because he likes playing right field, and he's an above-average defender as well. Doesn't get the credit there, but he's a well-above-average defender. Torres is your second baseman. Now, trade piece, possibly. Because Peraza, Oswald Peraza is not going to supplant Anthony Rizzo at short, Anthony Volpe at short. But he could very well earn that second base job if the Yankees move on from Glaber Torres, who was their best offensive player a year ago. It's not out of the question. Verdugo, I think, bats seventh. Now, the eight and nine spot, you got your catcher in Volpe. Volpe probably will bat ninth. I think it makes sense because then you could potentially get the 9-1-2 later in the game. You got Austin Wells and Jose Trevino. Trevino coming back from injury. And Wells looked pretty damn good in spots last year. He can swing a bat, which is what the Yankees need. They needed life in this offense. They'll come back with a solid bullpen. And then these are things that we can continue to break down as the season goes on because we just got out of the winter meetings. A lot more is going to happen with the big fish still being Otani. But the Yankees have work to do there. But they've started to do it. And you're going to have to spend money. But it's the intelligent aspect of the Yankees. Hey, we're not reinventing the wheel here. We don't know. And I'm, I'm, I'm predicting that they re-sign Soto. I think it's going to happen. But you can't eliminate the, the idea that you don't. So you're not going to give up the world. Sting to get rid of Michael King, sure. But I think you're okay there. And I think a lot of this looks better. And, and some people will say, or the, the pessimists will say, it's, it's Stanton all over again. Well, when John Carlos Stanton's on, he's pretty damn good. And I know it's been underwhelming. And so does John Carlos Stanton, by the way. So I, you know, I, I think we've got a path here, an idea of what the Yankees want to do. And I, and I think we'll start to see things start to develop you know, a, as we continue down uh, this winter, um, which obviously there'll be so much more to talk about. Uh, with MLB, the offseason rumor mill, obviously with college basketball. I mean, you're looking at teams like Houston, Arizona, UConn. Uh, I, Tennessee's opening schedule has been grueling, but I think they're ready uh, come tournament time. Zach Eadie might be the best player in the country for Purdue. And then obviously Kansas. Uh, Marquette's a very good team. I think this BYU team that nobody seems to be talking about is very good. And I like Miami. And I like what Miami brings to the table this year. South Carolina's off to a good start as well. I think there's a lot going on in college basketball, and we're going to have plenty of time for it. you got the in-season tournament um, in the NBA, and the NHL has really taken off the first couple of weeks to start the season. So we've got a lot to discuss. We'll start to get into it. I'm lining up guests that will come on, my buddy Bruce Shine in a couple of weeks, hopefully, uh, and some of our friends from over at the NFL and, and hopefully Major League Baseball uh, in the coming weeks. I'm going to let you all know about programming in the coming weeks uh, because I've got some uh, – School events, dinner events, wedding events coming up uh, that interfere with the Friday slate. So I will let you know next week. It looks like I'm going to be hosting uh, Thursday the 15th. Well, that would be Thursday the 14th. I apologize. Instead of the usual Friday slot, I will put that out on socials so you all know what's going on. As far as today's concerned, thanks as always, folks, for tuning in to the special Saturday edition of Sports Today with Peter J. And obviously a huge thanks to our sponsors at New York City's Dento Tekina, Judo Jiu-Jitsu, and MMA Dojo. We appreciate the loyalty and the sponsorship. Have a great weekend, everyone. As always, go Irish. And for this weekend, go Navy. Beat Army. Have a good one, folks.
I'll talk to you next week. Listen to Sports Today with Peter J. Every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. We'll see you there.